Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon-to-be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. So welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. This is episode number seven. I am joined today with Tracy Copenhaver and Candace Craig, and they are two nurses who work in a tele-ICU at a very large organization, and I'm excited to discuss with them tele-ICU. I want to begin, though, with discussing your backgrounds of nursing, if that's okay. Um, Candace, will start with you, and then Tracy will then continue with you. So Candace, start of where you've been and where, where you're at now. Um, so I started off actually in a diploma uh, nursing program, which those are very few and far between anymore. So I graduated in 2009 with that. Um, then, you know, I started off my career in a very small community hospital. Um, it was a cardiac step down unit. Um, from there, I moved into neurocritical care, um, did that for a little while while I worked on my bachelor's degree, uh, finished that um, in 2012. Um, did a couple different um, ICUs. I did neurocritical ICU. I did uh, the heart and vascular ICU with a big focus on mechanical circulatory support. Um, then I went to a mixed ICU. Um, and then I ended up in tele-ICU after I had a back injury. Um, so that's kind of how I found that. Um, and from there, I have been working on my dual master's degree, my master's in nurse administration, and my MBA, which I will graduate in May of 21. That's awesome. So, so basically taking over the world with both your MSN and MBA. Yeah, <laughs> just taking a long way around the non-traditional approach. Uh, That's <laughs> the best it's taken way to me, do it. Uh, yeah, five and a half years to do it, but it's going to be well worth it. Oh, that's perfect. The, I feel like the MBA is such a tough program just because of the MBA stuff that you need to do. That And in addition to that, you're doing a dual MSN MBA program, which lends mm-hmm. itself to be a little bit more rigorous. You have to do multiple tasks. And also you're trying to hold a full-time job and have a yeah. family and all this other stuff that you do. You know what I mean? So that is a quite accomplishment when you do finish, which, which will be awesome. I will send a virtual cheers because oh, I'm sure yeah. we'll still be in COVID <laughs> when you graduate. So. Yeah, absolutely. And then I was... Um, I, I completely forgot that you, that you and I only worked together for three years. I feel like it was so much longer than that because yeah. of the night shifts that we used to work. And I'm like, yeah, but we had a good time again for three years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and good then times, I forgot. Team. What? I'm sorry. It said we had a great team. And I think that's what made it feel like longer because you know, we so, got so close. Yeah. It was so much fun. And then I completely also forgot that you worked for an HVI as well after you were completed with the neurocritical care unit. So that's really yes. awesome. Great experience. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I was lucky. Um, I just remember back to my, my orientation we did um, during my, I think it was six weeks they had me on orientation because I was already an in-house nurse, mm-hmm. uh, but we did seven heart transplants in that six week time. So I actually got to see a lot that was more than like we ever had. <laughs> that that's time. crazy. Like it was, yeah, but uh, lots then, of great experience. Yeah. And then how many ECMOs did, did you do? If you don't mind me asking, if you remember. Oh my goodness. Um, personally. Oh, or just, or I don't know. General, but like, I know. How many did you see? There was a lot. I, I mean, during H1N1, we saw, I think we were running at one time, 11 at one time. Wow. So 
it was, yeah, it was pretty intense. That um, is, that is crazy. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be very excited to talk to you about your presentation, Sleep in the ICU. Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> I, I have read through your, both of your resumes. Thank you very much for sending them over. Because one of the things I love to do is love learning about what you're passionate about. And I think people who present things, mm-hmm. even though perhaps they might be voluntold, some people <laughs> may, may, may have that. I don't know if that's true for you. But they are very passionate about what they talk about because they have to talk about it. And sometimes they have to learn about it before they talk about it. And so I Absolutely. love getting to talk to people that have presented because I want to know more. I probably have not been to that conference that you've presented at before. Maybe I'll mm-hmm. attend this year since we do have a tele-ICU in my ICU. But yeah, it'll be really exciting to, to discuss those things. Yeah, yeah, that was, it was fun. And that was a collaboration with a couple other um, uh, nurse leaders in our in our health system. Um, and we did that actually for our, um, it was our, our retreat, an anniversary retreat of our, our EICU program. So that was nice. That's awesome. That's really cool. Tracy, welcome. welcome. Tell me a little bit about your, your journey. Yeah, so I've been a nurse um, since 1996. Um, I graduated from, uh, from Mansfield University. I worked at Robert Packer for a couple of years, um, traveled for, I don't know, four or five years. Um, worked in a cardiac cath lab, um, and then, um, ended up at my current organization and, um, have been there since, um, I think at this point, 2006. So, and then started, um, we started our tele-ICU program, um, in 2010, and I've been with the tele-ICU since about 2011. Wow. Um, and then... Oh gosh, no, it's probably been uh, probably about three years, two and a half, three years ago. Um, in addition to that, um, I got leadership responsibility for the cardiac ICU as well. So, um, so it's been a whiff busy, but, um, but good. So you're so. currently doing both the tele ICU and the cardiac ICU yes. at the same time. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Take a little bit of a, of a breather sometimes, right? Yeah. I, I am uh, curious though. So I've had two travel nurses on the podcast so far this season, and I'm very curious about how your travel experience was, um, at, you know, wherever you went to, was it kind of like now where it seems to be a little bit more, um, the, the MO of people. So a lot of people go in travel nursing and it's kind of like more mainstream now, I guess I I would say, (laughs) were there, were there similar challenges? Did you find it hard to do? Um, well, I, let's see, what year was it? I think, um, I started in, started traveling in like 2001 or so. Um, you know, so I'm going to totally date myself, um, you know, given that we're on a podcast, but, you know, MapQuest was just becoming the thing. Um, the internet wasn't quite, you know, quite as robust as it is now, you know, nobody had GPS, um, you know, so merely finding the, the hospitals that you were going (laughs) to work at, um, was somewhat more of a challenge than it would be in today's world. Um, but, uh, especially, you know, I worked in the greater DC area, um, in, in Baltimore, um, you know, so those areas was, uh, you know, navigating, the bigger cities was a little bit more challenging without a GPS. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, people, people you know, have it really easy it now. Yeah. You know, got it done. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I did it just more for, you know, for the experience. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and my experience was um, there was kind of like two kind of two ball two clubs I would say that the the places kind of fell into either one um, they embraced the travelers and you know kind of took you in as part of their own staff and you know, um, kind of treated you the same as everybody else, or, you know, you were just contracted labor and, you know, there to serve a purpose of, you know, filling shifts and, mm-hmm. um, you know, you were sort of like second-class citizens. And so of course the place, you know, the, the places that fell into the first group were where, you know, I chose to extend my assignments, the second group, not so much, but, yeah. um, you know, made decent money, but had a really good time. So I was more or less a tourist for about, you know, four and a half, five years. So that's that's really exciting though. I mean, I, a lot of nurses I meet want to do it for the sole fact of making more money. That's great. But I feel like sometimes they also miss the aspect of being a tourist for that same time in your own country, even. Um, And just kind of getting that rich experience of not only the hospital you work at and the clinical experience you get, but also where you are in the moment and experiencing culture, experiencing food. I love food yeah. <laughs> um, and doing all those things. So what made you go back to being a staff nurse then at just like a hospital like that you weren't going to be a travel nurse at? Um, I ended up getting custody of my teenage nieces and okay. decided that um, I needed to come back home to Pennsylvania for that because I needed my mommy. So. Yeah, who who wouldn't, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, when that was all going down, I was I was in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, which is a place I would have stayed probably for the rest of my life um, if you know my family circumstances weren't what they were. But um, you know, uh, it, it was all it all went shook out the way it was supposed to. It just um, I I just wasn't going to take in teenagers on you know from the other side of the country right that would be that would be very difficult to not only take in teenagers but also to move them to a different state altogether and a new environment I but I have met people who um actually my cousin right now she's driving back out to Arizona with her boyfriend and I believe that's where they want to build their house I I could be wrong but they are obsessed with Arizona my uncle lives out that way so there's must be something in the air out there I don't know Mm -hmm. But I believe the environment lends itself to just the the nature of it. I visited. I mean, it's sunny once. about three hundred and thirty days a year. So yeah, you know, how can so you get that? Who wouldn't love that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Never mind that you ha- that you probably have your air conditioning going. You know, two hundred days out of those three hundred sixty five. But it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so, Candace, really quickly, do you, so yourself and Morgan, uh, who has been on this podcast as well in our first season, were both diploma nurses. And I give a lot of commendments to diploma programs because not only, as you mentioned, those are few and far between, but I oftentimes feel that those programs are just insane in terms of the rigor of what you go through as a student. Did you find yeah. any, like, and I, I know that you had to go back for your bachelor's. Mm-hmm. Um, was it difficult for you to go back for your bachelor's? And did you find yourself after your diploma program more like a easier segue into nursing or did you find a little bit like I still am like kind of like you know just learning um no I actually um it's like boot camp nursing uh but you know one good thing that was awesome about it is in you know your last semester of school you were in clinical four days out of the week 
Um, so that was four eight hour days a week that we were that we were doing and we had full patient assignments and doing med passes and things like that. Um, and during the diploma program, we had really good experiences like where we would go to the ER or the same day surgery center to do IVs. And, you know, so we, there was a lot of hands-on skills where I feel um, that sometimes, you know, bachelor's programs don't give you as much, as many hands-on experiences. Right. Um, so I felt completely prepared coming out of my diploma program. Um, and I think, you know, it wasn't a hindrance in going back to school because I knew right there that was the plan right from the beginning that mm -hmm. I was going to take semester off after school, um, get a job somewhere and then start getting tuition reimbursement to complete my bachelor's degree. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it was, for me, it was just like a natural progression. And I, I chose the bachelor or the diploma program over, you know, I was accepted into a bachelor's program. And um, I just felt that that at the time that was my best choice. And I'm, definitely not disappointed in the choice that I made because I think those experiences definitely gave me a hand up right when I came out of school. Yeah, I, I, I have the same sentiments. I did not go to a, to a diploma program, but I went to a second degree bachelor's program and then I worked in Pittsburgh as my first job and they have like a, a ton of diploma programs out there. Mm -hmm. And I've always commended the nurses that I've met because they are some of the strongest willing nurses that just can be thrown into any kind of situation because of how much clinical experience they've had. And I teach for a program that we've had to do a mix of things in terms of in-person clinicals. And then we more recently had to do virtual clinicals once the pandemic hit. Um, do you guys have students within your tele-ICU environment at all? Off and on we have over the years, um, we haven't in the last couple of years, but we do, um, a couple of the ICUs will send their or their folks that are on orientation um, to do a, um, like a shadow experience with mm -hmm. our staff for a couple hours, just so they get an idea of the role and how the EICU nurse can help them um, once they get off orientation. That's really cool. Do yeah. you find that uh, students are more apt to being an ICU nurse once experiencing your tele-ICU unit? Is that where they kind of want to go? Or is it just that everybody can, can get this experience if, if they want to? Um, good question. I'm trying to remember. It's been a couple of years since we've had a nursing student. Um, I think before it was, um, they just, uh, it, it was like an elective or one of, you know, like, they would send them for a couple hours out of one of their days for an observation. Um, you know, I think if that, that was something the student was interested in. Mm. So. That's awesome. Yeah. Questions about your master's really quickly, because I often tell my students that I find it very important to wait at least five years. Once you get your first job in deciding what you want to do with like for your master's, if that's your idea, as opposed to just going right into a master's program. And I noticed that you know you have uh, Tracy bachelor's from 96 and then a master's from, from 2009 do you feel that it was beneficial to then go back a little bit later for your master's as opposed to going like right away oh absolutely um I was much more probably a much more focused student um and I had sort of tinkered with different ideas of what I wanted to go back to school for um, I've always enjoyed teaching, and so my, my master's is um, a master's in nursing with an emphasis in education, and so, um, you know, so that, that suited me. 
um, which wasn't something that, you know, I had really thought of beforehand um, as being an option, you know, for a nursing master's program. Um, I knew I definitely did not want to do an NP route, um, had tinkered with the idea of CRNA, um, but, you know, really was kind of convinced that wasn't for me either. So it took me a little while to kind of figure out what path I wanted and this seemed to be the path that best suited me. That's awesome. And Candace, how about you? I know you, you just mentioned that you're doing a dual degree. What was it for mm-hmm. you that decided to like, kind of like take the slow route as you will? And also why did you choose the, the dual MSN MBA program? Well, that's a great question, too, because actually nurse administration was not the first um, the first path for my master's that I had chosen. Um, I was in school to be a, a nurse practitioner, uh, but with the back injury and, you know, things like that. And just in how, you know, sometimes you got to go where life leads mm-hmm. and, you know, just my career path, um, it, it just seemed like it was leading me more towards the administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I started doing that and I was just kind of picking away for, at it, you know, one class at a time, my advisor had actually introduced the idea of the dual masters. And we kind of sat down together and really talked it out. And she said, you know, it's only this many classes, could fast track most of it. Um, and it really would just, um, you know, be a better experience uh, and, and kind of uh, just be, a, I guess, a, a more productive degree is what she, <laughs> how she kind oh, of yeah. phrased it, um, you know, and, and just kind of help me out. Because I guess, you know, focus is gearing towards having an MBA when you're going into leadership in healthcare systems. Um, so, and I know that there's some, uh, and actually the school Bloomsburg, they're, they're, you know, toying with the idea of actually making a separate MBA for healthcare professionals oh. um, to go in with the dual master's track at Bloomsburg. So, so maybe um, like an MHA MBA program? Mm-hmm. Or no, an uh, MSN, but, and that the MBA focus on per, uh, particularly healthcare oh, organizations. Okay. And yeah. as opposed to yeah. like another MBA track that you could do such as marketing right. or wherever. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool too. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the term that you might be looking for is diversifying. And I've yeah. met a, a lot of people that have told me throughout the years to not necessarily a go to the same school that you've always gone to and B to try to do something else with your degree. It, it could be a nursing, but do something else that you're, that you're not even thinking of, but have kind of a direction towards that can help diversify what you're trying to look for in the future. Now, that being said, I have no clue what I want to do with my life <laughs> after my DNP. <laughs> you're going to open that neuro hospital. What? <laughs> Remember, you're going you're gonna to open that neuro hospital, Nicole. Gonna, like, I don't re- <laughs> You have told me this so many times, and I don't remember mentioning this, this to you. Oh. It must have been like. Well, it was one of the 4 a.m. chats, you know, <laughs> that I'm going to rule the world with a neuro hospital and go from admission to all the way through to rehab. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, that's a great idea, right? And we'll, and we'll bring the telling us you in there, and then we'll just have you guys, you know, help us out, and it'll be a great thing. Absolutely. <laughs> the things that people remember that, that I say, I don't know where I say these things. It's fine though. Definitely a 4 a.m. Uh, time where we probably were still doing those basin baths and yes. soap yeah. and water and not CHG. Absolutely. You know, scrub, you know, yeah, scrub on bubbles time. Scrub on so. bubbles time. That's, and loud yeah. music. There was no quiet time back, back no. then. No, no. <laughs> I want to say that we were probably the cause 
and the solution to quiet time <laughs> after a while. Because I feel like when when um, when you and Morgan left is the time when we had quiet time on night shifts. And I was like, oh, and I left night shifts at that time. I, I flipped the full-time days. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, it, we could have very well been the reason for quiet time <laughs> in the neuro ICU. <laughs> it's been a good time, right? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Speaking of, this is a good segue. Speaking of quiet time, uh, let's get into your presentation of sleep in the ICU, mm -hmm. if that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So, so because I'm always interested and I feel like students would really benefit from, from hearing this and not just my perspective. How did you get involved with presenting? Presenting is a huge deal to me. Presenting is, you know, you should be out there being an expert in, in your field, talking about what you know, because number one, if you're not going to be an expert, someone else is, so you should do it. And number two, I feel like you meet so many great people by presenting or just being out there for things. So just tell me about that. Yes. So, um, Really, it, it all stemmed from, I was at a conference. Um, um, it was a, a Philips EICU conference and there was a very interesting presentation um, about, uh, you know, ICU patients and the fact that they never get um, to enter that REM sleep for healing. Um, so, you know, it gave a, a lot of good data on, you know, on, on the light levels and the sound levels. Um, and so that really kind of sparked my interest. Um, and then just knowing that, um, so, uh, you know, one of our campuses, the leadership there was running a pretty much a pilot program on, you know, sleep protocols in the ICU, you know, quiet time and, and things like that. So it just seemed like a natural thing. They were interested in, I was interested in it. Hey, let's get together. Um, you know, I'm very interested in the research. And so I did a lot of the research and they provided a lot of their data. Um, so it was really, um, and, and they do, have done some tremendous work um, in, you know, length of stays and getting people up and moving and, and things like that. So it was just really interesting to see. But, you know, as, as nurses, I don't think we really realize how loud even just the basic machinery that's sometimes keeping these people alive, you know, how loud it is and, and those consistent um, you know, interruptions in the sleep cycle, you know, so it's really all about clustering care um, and, you know, just making sure you're giving that patient just time to heal, time to sleep, get into those restorative sleep modes. Um, and it's just, it's such a cool topic. There's a lot more research coming out on it, you know, it was something that was kind of pushed to the wayside, but I think, you know, at highest in some of the research shows that like it gets up to 80 decibels, that's like construction equipment going off that's next year, zone. you know? Yeah, and that's in an ICU. So I mean, so it's just it's just something that you know any person that's entering critical care going to work in an environment really should kind of keep in the forefront of their mind. Um, you know, so there's things that you could do for your patients like just earplugs. You know, it's simple as that. Earplugs and you know, uh, you know, a face mask to, to kind of keep the light levels down. Um, you know, quiet time uh, really has helped, and I think that's kind of spread across the country about you know quiet time, quiet environments healing so yeah it's a really interesting topic yeah um, I love it uh, we actually we submitted it you know for a couple other um, conferences but of course you know with the COVID and the, everything's at a standstill so hopefully we'll get to present that um, in some yeah. other forum I'm, I'm I'm hoping that that you know there is a moment in time when we actually can do live presentations again because quite honestly there's nothing like being in front of people and expressing things and, and, you know, and making connections and making sure that the people get what you're saying. Um, 
just real quickly, I did a presentation on a Zoom and I, and it was fine, but it wasn't like connecting with people, you know, where I'm like there and I'm nervous, I'm sweating and I'm excited, but I'm also like excited to share what I have and for people to hear what I have. Yes. And just quickly going back to what you were saying about sleep in the ICU, since implementing quiet time, especially mm -hmm. during the day, so we do hours two to 4 p.m., I have been so much more acutely aware of how loud my unit can be and how loud oxygen tanks are <laughs> slamming in the morning and how loud, you know, different machines beeping are. And just, and I don't know if it's because we have quiet time that my sense of sense of hearing has been amplified because of that. And my, my ears are probably healing themselves up. Um, or if it's, or if it's in part of that, you know, we really are this loud and yeah. need to do our part of quieting down a lot mm -hmm. of things that we do. Yeah, and it's such a modifiable factor, you know, and it's something that we have control over um, as nurses, um, you know, and we can put interventions in place that, you know, can really impact care yeah. and outcome. Yeah, that's awesome. And quick question, do you guys mm -hmm. oversee a neuro ICU? Uh, yes, we do have a neuro ICU. Yeah. Do you notice, um, so we tend to try to get our vitals and neuroscience changed, right? So you just mentioned uninterrupted sleep is really important. However, for neuro ICU patients, if you're a neuro nurse like I am and Candace was, slash still is, um, you know that it's very hard to allow a patient to sleep. So have you noticed any kind of best practices or things like that that allow better sleep in that environment? Um. No, I think that they've just changed, you know, um, you, back in the day, usually an order would kind of go on and then just kind of hang there indefinitely. Um, and nobody would really address it. I think it's just more being more cognizant of those, you know, having Q out one hour neuro checks for longer than 48 hours, um, just really isn't necessary anymore. You know, you know, 48 hours. Like, yeah. Do you have data for that? I would love to see that. Cause we, I don't know where, where we're at per se, but we've, we have to kind of really suggest, hey, can we maybe, you know, let this go down to, to Q4 hours, right? Yeah. Is, it really, is it really a point of all these? Well, I'm just, just thinking back to some of the, the articles that I read for that sleep disturbances in the ICU, because that is definitely something that comes up. Um, you know, it's a question in the research, you know, when is it okay to stop these things? Um, you know, things like that, because, you know, post-TPA, mm -hmm. when we have that, that protocol that's going on, you know, you're doing 15s and 30s and Q1 hours, but you just can't let that hang forever. You know, right. what is the good, what is a, a good time frame to stop? And, and I know that 24 to 48 hours does come up a lot in the research. I could absolutely send you over some articles, links to yeah. articles that I found. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, we, we could even reference those in this podcast notes as well. Sure. I think those would be really beneficial for people to, to see, mm -hmm. which would be awesome. Yeah. So I want to get into Kelly, I see you now. And I noticed one of the, of the presentations that um, Tracy you've done is separating myths from truths. And you've been in Kelly, ICU for a very long time. So what is a Kelly, ICU? What are some of the myths that we have about Kelly, ICU? And what are some of the truths that we have now in Kelly, ICU? So tele-ICU is, um, is really a, um, it's, I call it a, a remote monitoring unit. unit. So, um, so we have audiovisual capability for every ICU patient um, across our health system. 
we're able to um, see all the vital signs, get alerts for um, changes in um, vital signs. So, you know, at the bedside, you know, you, you get an alarm when um, the, you know, heart rate goes above the limit, the set limit, but this will give us an alert if it's going in, you know, um, if the heart rate is going up, right? So if there's a trend in the wrong way. Um, <clears throat> the thing, um, the thing that when I talk about it, the video that I always use is the monkey business video. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that or if anybody's ever seen that, but it's the one where there's, um, a team in white shirts and a team in black shirts and they're bouncing a ball in, in between them. And you're supposed to, you know, um, you're supposed to count the number of ball passes and then a gorilla walks through yeah. and, uh, <laughs> And, and it's, um, and it's about, uh, selective attention, right? So, um, there's a second video that I use, which the, there's the people bouncing the ball, the gorilla, um, somebody leaves the game and, um, there's actually five things and I can't ever remember the fifth one, but the fourth one is the screen in the background changes color. And, um, and so as many times as I've seen that video, I've not ever been able to to see all of those things happen when they happen and count the number of ball passes and the point being that that's what happens in the icu mm -hmm. right so if you're paying attention to one patient there's always something going on with your other patient that you're not that your attention isn't on and so that's where the eicu comes in as we you know we're there to you know help keep small problems small problems um so that's, you know, that's why when I'm talking about it, I use that video is because it's, that's kind of exactly what happens in a given day. There's no possible way you can see everything happen when it happens. Yeah. Eventually you'll notice that somebody left the game or you'll notice that, Hey, there was a gorilla that walked through the game or that screen's different, but to see it when it happens is really, really hard. Um, especially if you haven't been doing it or, you know, seen that happen a hundred times. Yeah. So, um, so that's sort of my, my analogy for what we do. Um, and I forget the second half of the question. Oh, I was just discussing, you know, myths versus truths. Right. Um, what, what we, cause when, when I first heard of tele ICU, a lot of people thought, oh, well, it's, it's, you know, the government trying to spy right. on us. Right? Oh yeah. Big brother. Yeah. Yeah. Big brother. He is here. And you know, there's, I'm sure there's other myths and stuff like that, but if, but if you have any like stories oh, yeah. of those, yeah. Yeah. That's the number one is the big brother, um, that, you know, that the camera's always on, that somebody's going to watch you, that we're going to see you doing something wrong and, and rat you out or narc you out. Um, the, when I, when I'm teaching about it, um, the thing, the thing I say is, is ICU nurses really don't make a good reality TV show, <laughs> you know, so our nurses have between, you know, typically about 35 to 40 patients. I think right now we have them up in the ballpark of 50 to 60, um, with adding, you know, beds and stuff with COVID and different work with COVID. So, um, so they really don't have time or energy to just sit and watch you work and then, you know, look and see if there's something going on that, um, that they could, they could tell on you for, um, yeah. you're just not that interesting. Um, <laughs> and then the other, <laughs> and then the other thing is, you know, we get, we get worked up about that, but if you think about the number of times in a given day that you're on video, that you don't know about it, um, you know, just think about how the Boston bomber was caught, you right. know, it was from, you know, different um, security video, right. Was, 
you know, you're on, on video at the bank, you're on video at, at stores, you know, all over the place and you don't know about it. Um, so we actually tell you when we turn the camera on. So, you know, so you know that the camera's on. Um, and it's only on when we need to see the patient or interact with the nurse. So, um, so that's, I think the number one myth is that, you know, the camera's always on that we're going to, you know, that we're going to be there, be big brother, look over your shoulder, tell you what to do. Um, over time, we've adjusted the way that we talk to people a little bit too, um, to kind of help with that in the beginning, <clears throat> if we, you know, if we called somebody or cameraed in to talk to a nurse about, you know, say for instance, a blood pressure, we'd start the conversation with, Hey, did you know your blood pressure is like, you know, 80 over 20? Well, a nurse in the room with a patient with the alarm monitoring, of course, they know that the blood pressure is 80 over 20. What the question we really wanted to ask was, I noticed that your blood pressure is 80 over 20. How can I help you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so instead of asking, you know, the, the question that got the snarky answer of, well, yeah, I know it's 80 over 20. I'm standing thanks. right here. I'm here. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for, thanks for pointing out the painfully obvious. Um, you know, we learned to communicate in a different way so that, you know, so that, um, it was a lot more helpful and the communication was better. Um, so, and then, you know, other myths, um, you know, that, uh, you know, we're just there watching telemetry, right. That we're going to watch the, the rhythms all day. Um, some of our nurses do, <laughs> Mm -hmm. Some of them I've been trying to convince for 10 years that they're not teletechs and, you know, they, um, we do have the capacity to see the rhythms on all of our patients, but I, you know, ideally, um, we're looking at other things. So we're looking at the, the trending alerts and, um, you know, looking for, you know, missing best practices and, and things like that. So, um, right now with COVID and all the isolation patients, we're doing a lot of dual sign um, for high risk meds and, and that sort of thing. So that's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So is that where, so back to your, your biggest myth of communication, is that where effective, effective communication, it's a two-way street presentation kind of came from was mm -hmm. all these little like niches of how do we best communicate with each other? Right. That's really cool. What, what are some takeaways from that presentation of communication? Because I am not a tele-ICU nurse and my communication is usually phone, um, I'm typing or I'm speaking directly to someone. So, and then oftentimes maybe for like a blip, <laughs> I will see, I will see the tele-ICU lady come on. Hello, how are you doing? And then turn right back away, <laughs> you know? So I don't really interact with the tele-ICU nurses that we have, but what are some takeaways from that presentation that you could tell other nurses? So, um, so the first thing, you know, one of the first things that I, I tell everybody is that, um, you know, text messaging and um, email, those sort of things are only instant communication for the sender, right? So if you really want a response for somebody, you're probably going to need to, you know, to call them or use the camera, um, you know, that that you can't rely on on getting an instant response from a text message because, I mean, the reality is, is if you're in an isolation room and your phone's in your pocket, you're probably not going to be able to get to that phone for a while. Um, or, you know, if your hands are dirty or, you know, yeah. your gloves, glove covered hands, I should say, are dirty, you're probably not going to be able to get to that to respond. So, um, but, you know, some of the other things, um, you know, is that um, is just really adjust, like I said, adjusting the 
the message to be what it is that you want the person to hear, right? So instead of, you know, the, well, did you know this? You know, yeah, of course we know that you know, but like really the question is, how can I help you, mm-hmm. right? Or I see that you're busy there. I'm just going to help you with your other patient, right? Like it looks like you're going to be involved there for a little while. Who's your other patient? So, um, so can I, can I enter some vital signs for you? Can I just pop in and look at them, make sure they're okay for you? Right. So sort of that suggestive selling so that we're, um, you know, so that we're offering the assistance a little bit in a different way, um, instead of just, you know, kind of offering the, the obvious. Yeah. Um, and then really just being mindful about how we're communicating mm-hmm. um, and ma- making sure that we're professional and things like that. And for our bedside folks, the number one thing is that, especially with the tele-ICU and, and over video, um, those conversations always happen in the patient room. So, you know, so just remembering that we're in front of patients and making sure the conversation is professional. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I was just about to ask yeah. um, because so- sometimes our tele-ICU will call us other times. It's just based on, on video. And I was wondering, you know, if, if one nurse is in one room doing a lot of things, do you then video in to discuss things with that nurse or is it a phone call to that nurse to help them out? Yeah. It really kind of depends on the situation, you know? So like, if there's something like urgent that, you know, I need to, um, see the patient for, or if I get like an alert for, you know, a sudden drop in blood pressure or heart rate or something like that. And I flip on the camera. I mean, actually the first thing I'm going to do is flip on the camera make sure the patient's okay. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I'm going to find the nurse there with the patient too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's where that conversation will happen. Um, if not, I would probably call the desk, um, you know, or whatever other means of communication we have. So. Yeah. That's really cool. And really yeah. neat to hear you say the first thing I'm going to do is flip on the camera right? Because you're not there at the bedside. And so the first thing I would do to see if a patient's okay is say, Hey, are you okay? Right. And walk to the bedside, feel a pulse, whatever I think is wrong. And it's neat to hear you say that the first thing I'm going to do is this because it's a different environment, right? It's all virtual. It's all on the screen and it's not, I'm going to look at the chart. It's I'm going to see if the patient's okay as number one person. Yeah. I mean, it's similar, but different, right? Like if I saw that, that vital sign, come across the screen or, you know, blood pressure pop up in, the, and I was in the unit, I would go to the room and look at the patient and see mm-hmm. if they were okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Before I went to find the nurse to, that was assigned to that patient to find out if that was their norm. Right. I would just yeah. go look at them and see if they were okay. Yeah. Um, and, and then I would find the nurse, you know, if there was something that was, you know, a lot of times I would find those two people together. So right. it's, it's a lot, it's a lot the same. Right. That's really cool. Candace. So what was it like going from being a bedside nurse to a tele-ICU nurse? Was it daunting? Were you scared? Was it like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like it's going to be probably easy. I don't know. What was that like for you? Um, well, it was definitely a transition um, because, um, you know, I will say full disclosure, I wasn't ready to not be a bedside nurse anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I still wanted to be taken care. So I, I would say the biggest thing to remember Um, and that I had to kind of work through on my own was that I'm not the person taking care of that patient at the bedside and you have to be able to trust, um, in the patient, the the nurses that are at the bedside, taking care of those patients. And it was being able to be able to slow myself down. Cause you know, as an ICU nurse, you're constantly, you know, a million miles an hour trying to get things. Yep. Yeah. 
So, you know, giving those that bedside team the ample time to be able to address the issues that we're seeing, you know, and, and kind of not jumping on them right away. Like as Tracy said, your blood pressure is this, you know, giving them, t- giving them time to actually like, you know, yeah. get in the room, start doing what they need to do, you know, t- communicate with the doctors. So that was probably the biggest thing for me um, is letting go somewhat of that control. And you kind of have to flip your perspective, um, you know, because, you know, when you're, you love being a bedside nurse, you know, like I did, like you do, um, and I'm sure like Tracy did as well, you know, you, you want to do what's best for that patient right away. And you don't want to want to give that interaction up, but you know, when you feel like you're helping somebody, you're making a difference. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at it, you know, as, okay, you're still making a difference and you're actually able to make a difference on a wider scope. Um, you know, cause a lot of also what that what's entailed in tele ICU is we help a lot with quality improvement projects, you know, and things like that. We do auditing, you know, and things that really affect outcomes. Um, you know, so you just kind of, yeah, you just have to flip that perspective, yeah. you know, and you are, you're still helping. You're still an integral part of the healthcare team. Yeah. It's just on, on a different level. Yeah. That's all. That's a really neat perspective that, you know, and, and it's because I've, I've only been in, in one place for so long and hearing the discussions of perhaps what you guys do is a wonderful opportunity for me to like think outside the box here. And that's, a, that's a really neat thing that, that you guys get to do is quality improvement. I'm, I'm very passionate about QI. I love QI mm-hmm. projects. I love research as you know, personally, Candace, but a lot of people that listening probably don't, but I think that there's, there needs to be a different way of doing QI and maybe, you know, tele-ICUs are the way in terms of not burdening the people at the bedside with all they have to do. And I'm not saying that you guys should shovel the burden, but perhaps there is a, there is a neat little way that telling ICUs know how to do way better than us, you know, at, at the bedside. So yeah, that's really cool to hear. Yeah. And we have like a tele ICU has a really unique perspective, especially when you're a tele ICU that covers an entire health system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're looking at the way people do things all across the health, health system, you know, and you can find discrepancies and, and see those kind of things, you know, and instead of, you know, you can help them not reinvent the wheel, you know, right. say, Hey, they're doing things this way. How about we try this? Or, you know, or if there's a question that comes, it's always about the ask, right, Tracy? So mm-hmm. we'd really try to like, whatever they really ask for, if they're asking for help they obviously need help so we're going to find a way to make that happen for them that's really cool so paint me a picture here um (laughs) your tele icu monitors how many units oh my a lot sure (laughs) it's a lot of units yeah we're upwards about um and with the expansion and watching covid beds too so you know we were at about i want to say just under 160 beds originally right tracy yeah, 160 like beds. Yeah, so um, you know, there's been a few additions, and then we've really expanded um, to kind of help even with the acute care patients at this point. Yeah, um, utilizing some you know mobile technology, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And then, how many computer screens do you have in front of you at one time? There's six. Six monitors. Yeah. So each person has six monitors. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm just trying to paint a picture for, for people listening because I've seen photos online and it's four or so. So it's good to know that it's actually quite a bit of monitors in front of you. Yeah. And I think it depends too on the, the tele-ICU. So typical is like six to eight. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. You need a lot of real estate. You're watching a lot of things. <laughs> um, so 
you know, and a lot of what EICU is, is, uh, you know, predictive modeling. Mm, so, okay. you know, we, yeah, we, we abstract a lot of data, you know, and we put it into, you know, our software that comes up with things like, you know, uh, mortality risk, um, you know, there's something that actually can, you know, it helps to predict if a patient's going to need an intervention within 60 minutes of time. So it bases on cardiac and respiratory status, you That's know, and it pulls in like lab data, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it's really neat. Yeah. Um, so if you're, yeah. a, you know, nerd and into that kind of stuff, <laughs> into that kind of stuff, it's really awesome, you know? Um, so, and then our docs use that a lot too, to, to help triage, because we also have a doctor at night, you know, so they'll look at some of those things and that could help them triage and and things of that nature. And then furthermore, and then to other people in the organization that say, hey, this is what we're actually looking at and maybe you should look at too to consider help reduce risk. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. I, I try to so hard um, tell my students in their clinical setting that they need to care about things like mortality, morbidity, quality, mm-hmm. improvement, all these things, why falls actually matter, why little things like blips and in, blood pressure management. I'm sorry, if you can hear my dog, he's like crying because my friend just came over. (laughs) This is the best part about podcasting is that you get all the sounds, right? Um, I apologize, but it's really important to hear you say that as well, not only from being a nurse for so long, but also because it is what it is right now. When you go to be a new, a, a new nurse in a hospital, you have to care about these things. And if your programs are not teaching you about it, then you need to look into it because it's not going to escape us. And it's such an integral part of patient care that there are like certifications on quality improvement and certifications Mm -hmm. on um, quality management for my HI alone. So I think that, you know, hearing that a tele-ICU really cares about that is really important. Yeah. So something interesting that that just um, occurred to me is the entire time that we've been talking, um, I completely forgot that we have um, physicians that work in our department from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Okay. Which is kind of funny because I get aggravated with um, with our providers because um, and, you know, we have a a a hospital, local hospital that we partner with um, that only ever like like basically thinks that the whole program is just a way to consult the, the intensivist at nighttime. And there, there is um, that myth. Yeah. And so I kind of um I kind of just had a like a, a reverse like I don't know slight against the providers, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I forgot that they exist, much like the providers always forget that the nurses exist when they talk about tele ICU. I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah. It takes it takes a lot of people to come at the table together to, to figure out that they also matter to each other, right? Yeah. <laughs> but no, but and they do definitely matter um, because yeah. one, of, one of the biggest wins was um, one of our hospitals um, in the beginning, before we went live, they, their providers were doing um, basically seven days a week on call, you know, so they would work in the unit all day long, go home, get called all night long with basically every admission and any problem that a patient had, Mm -hmm. and then come back in the next day and do it all again. And they would do that for seven days. And um, then the organization, um, you know, was rolling out the tele-ICU and the cell was um, basically pretty simple. It went a lot like 
So what's going to happen is you're going to, at the end of your shift, sign out to the tele ICU doc, and then you're going to go home. And then in the morning when you're on, you know, when you come back in, then you'll call them for sign out about what happened at night and the time in between, like you basically get to be off and you don't That's get called. That's so great. <laughs> and I mean, and, yeah. And they were on board in about two minutes. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yeah, so that's a definitely yes for me. I mean, that's yeah. one of the one of the reasons I look back and I'm really thankful that I never became a physician. Yeah. Because I I thought for some reason, like, you know, you go to med school, you do your residency, and you do this on call experience during residency, but then it gets easier. And when I stepped into I can't just shake her head, no. When I stepped into a hospital, no, you like live that life for the rest of your life. And so if there is one bit of ease into that, I mean, I would definitely take them the heartbeat. And it sounds like such a great way of doing that for physicians is through the tele-ICU experience, which man, that's, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, unless you become like a primary care doc and, you know. And right, that's a little bit different. Not at all enter the hospital, then you're, you're pretty much <laughs> golden as far as your time off goes. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you, you think of like, we have services where I work and, you know, one physician on a certain service covers like 60 patients and that's like six different service lines underneath their service. And it's like, that's just crazy. How do you get yeah. stuff done? You can't, you know, whereas if you have a tele ICU overseeing these people and perhaps one physician kind of asking the questions during the nighttime would solve so many issues that could be prevented. Yeah, and like our main campus is so the ICUs are so far apart, you know. So it's a good like three or four city blocks between the unit that I manage and the other ICUs. Oh wow! You know, so you know, so if they're you know the intensivist at night needs to go from like one unit to my unit to see a patient, like that's a haul, you know. Yeah. And then going back, like that's a lot of like wasted time in between if there's, you know, patients in various units having trouble. So you know, so the where the EIC, you know, the tele ICU doc can just, you know, go from one camera to the other and, and be there in a matter of seconds. Yeah, so. that's fabulous. Wow. So Candace, what is, what, well, I guess it's for both of you. What is staffing like in a tele ICU? Um, well, right now we expand a little bit, but we try to, uh, to staff four nurses uh, per shift and it is based on a nurse patient ratio. Okay. Um, you know, as Tracy mentioned earlier, they're usually between 30 and 40 patients. Now it's, you know, 50 and 60 with the surge. Um, so it's kind of based on that, like how many beds you have and that's how you kind of break it down and how many staff you need. So we staff with uh, four, four RNs per shift. Right now we're doing five. Um, and then we have a unit desk clerk 24 seven okay. as well. So, so they will help feel, um, you know, enter our admission data um, and they help with some of the quality improvement, you know, data abstraction as well. Um, and things like that. So there's always four, four RNs. Um, I think we're up to about 90% are CCRN certified. That's, right. um, that's actually a requirement for the position. Um, and we like to have about three to five years ICU experience um, before, you know, we'd bring them on. I was just about to ask if there's any recommendations of experience before, before even joining a tele-ICU mm -hmm. environment. And that, that often echoes what I am also passionate about teaching my students is that a lot of times students want to go into that high adrenaline environment of an ED. And I kind of say, okay, let's think about that for a minute. 
because you're in the ED where there is a vast array of patients with really complex issues and you have no clue what those issues are until you work them up. At what benefit are you if you're going into that environment right away out of school, mm-hmm. as opposed to spending three, five, 10 years experience in different ICU settings, getting that experience and then going to the ED to help those patients out better. Mm-hmm. And it sounds kind of similar. Like I know Atelier is not the ED, but your environment is so vast and has a large complex different patient population that it almost sounds like the same sort of aspect would, would ring true with that. Yes. Yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting too, because we started out, so kind of historically when the program first went live, we started with a 10 year experience requirement um, and then figured out pretty quickly that um, that we could, that there was almost no nurses that would meet that need. Um, so it made recruiting extremely hard. And honestly, like they really didn't need that much experience. So we dropped it to five. <coughs> And then, um, and then we were having uh, some recruiting problems again, probably about, I don't know, seven, eight, you know, six, seven years ago, and um, kind of found that three years tends to be that sweet spot that, um, you know, that the, the IC nurse has, you know, gotten, kind of gotten their feet wet, gotten some good experience, and, um, you know, is, is able to kind of be, you know, stand their own ground and stuff, and, um, and, and three years just seems to work. Obviously, if we could get somebody with more experience, then we like that. But um, and then what uh, what we also did was we created shared physicians. So we have nurses that work exactly half of their time in one of the um, bedside units at our main campus, um, and the other half of their time in the tele ICU. And so that's about half of our staff do that, um, and then the other half are full time EICU. And then, um, and about half come from like a unit that is cardiac and the other half come from like a, a med surge ICU neuro trauma background. So, um, so on any given day, you end up with somebody in the room that has a really strong cardiac background and somebody that has a really strong neuro background and somebody that's still working at the bedside and somebody that, you know, is, is full-time tele-ICU. So, you know, so they kind of um, use their experience, um, bounce it off, you know, each other if they have questions or, you know, things like that. There's a lot of learning. They teach each other a lot. Um, and having the shared positions has helped our full-time staff quite a bit too, because um, the thing that I always say is that, you know, our our worst day in the tele-ICU is still better than our very best day in, in the ICU. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so, um, you know, it's, it's a pretty good gig, um, even if we're busy and there's a lot going on and a lot of changes and, you know, um, you know, we're taking on extra patients and things like that. We still don't have to put on isolation gowns. Um, you know, the only, I'll say it, this is my number one recruiting line, which, you know, the only butt that we wipe is our own. You know, so, <laughs> you know, um, you know, so those, those are the things that like, you know, it's our, our very worst day is still better than our very best day in the bedside. So, yeah. um, yeah. and, yeah. and, and the, folks that st- the folks that are in those shared positions really help our full-time staff remember that. Cause sometimes after you get yeah. away from it for, for a while, you kind of forget. 
Yes, but I do want to point out that so a lot of our staff that are full time, um, we are, we're, we kind of call ourselves like the walking wounded. So it is a lot of, you know, you know, ICU nurses that just physically can't do the job, the bedside yeah. job anymore. But, you know, you spend all that time gaining all that experience, becoming certified in your specialty, yeah. you know, and it's a way to utilize your skills and still maintain your CCRN certification and still help people in the critical care environment, you know? I think that's I think that's so important. You bring up such a good point with that because how many times have we met nurses that have just become burnout in their bedside mm-hmm. role for whatever reason, and they still want to take care of patients. They still know tremendous amounts of information, but then they're kind of segued out to a same day unit, you know, or peri-op or somewhere that is the quote unquote where, where nurses go to pasture. Um, which which I've heard so many times. Um, And it's like working in Disneyland apparently too, but I have yet to to discover that. Um, In that, you know, if there were an an environment to to still maintain your CCRN or even your CCRNK, that that's still, you know, a better day than Mm -hmm. any other day outside of that, right? So I think that that quote goes two ways. Yeah, yeah, and our shared nurses actually have said, some of them have said that working in the tele-ICU and being in that shared position has made them better at the bedside mm. because they they have more patience and more like just having that week away from yeah. the stress and the chaos of the bedside. When they go back to it, like they feel like they feel better. They feel like they have more patience, like they have mm-hmm more ability to cope with that stress, having that time, like that break from it. Yeah. That's a really good point to bring, to bring up. I have yet to obviously be in a tele-IC environment, but I will say when COVID hit, you know, we separate our units and our unit became a mix of neuro and trauma ICU and and medical ICU because our unit, we can't handle HBI patients. Thank God. Because I am not an HBI nurse. Sorry, y'all. It's fun. But <laughs> I, it, it is. Listen, and I have picked up time in our COVID ICUs, and I've seen ECMO patients, and I have a new appreciation for heart vascular stuff. I still don't ever want to do it. <laughs> but, it <laughs> but it does look very fun to think about things in a different way. I have taken care mm-hmm. of people with swans, you know, for the first time in such a long time, uh, because that's what was needed in, in our COVID ICU. I'm so thankful that I've had colleagues that I've worked with in this unit that I'm like, listen, like this, it's been a good solid three years since I've even seen a swan, you know, could you take me through this? And I'll, I promise I'll do a good job. And here we are. And that alone has lent itself a lot less stress on my part, even though it's a new thing, but it's being in a different environment surrounded by different people and you're learning from each other and you're able to just let go that I found has been so beneficial during this time rather than being in the same chaotic environment of my own unit, you know? And, you know, that would be like, I, I had once said to my manager that I would, that if they were looking for, you know, full-time COVID ICU nurses, I would like to do like a shared position, just like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. sometime in the COVID ICU, sometime in my own ICU because of the breaks that you get in terms of like thinking differently and just not having yeah. too much in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Is tele-ICU, so does that also lend itself to any kind of caregiver fatigue by being, by, by working in a tele-ICU? Have you noticed that at all? Um, I think 
we we had a, an outside hospital that we supported a couple of hospitals that we supported for a while um where um the communication was it was very difficult mm-hmm. um the care was not what we felt it should be on a regular basis and i think for a lot of us um that was very morally distressing because you know when you see when you see the train wreck about to happen you feel like you have to do something about it you know and then when you're trying to intervene and and say you know get your get your car off the track it's going to get hit by the train and they don't get the car off the track and the train hits it and you watch that happen like that's very very distressing for folks um thankfully um the contract didn't get renewed so you know so we're not with that organization anymore um but you know but i think i don't know that we've really had that experience too much um since then but you know i think sometimes that's like probably the the biggest thing is that you know sometimes just sort of seeing that that train coming and occasionally not being able to get folks to to see to see that the train is coming yes yeah and i think just just like you're mentioning nurses are a little bit more patient and they have a little bit of a different um perspective on things you have that perspective to tell the other hospitals hey the train is coming it's gonna it's gonna not do good and sometimes no one else can see that and you know maybe the communication just wasn't as I guess perfect as it could have been who knows but it's a it's such a unique perspective to offer because even myself like you guys are making me think of man I really need to be nicer to those tele ICU nurses that call me <laughs> good <laughs> and not yeah, not be. not that I'm yeah, not you nice, should right? you definitely but, need to be nicer to them they're just trying yeah. to help but in but in a different way of of Oh, I could definitely cause some some damage to them if I communicate wrong or if I'm just irritated a little bit that day. And because they are so nice on the phone all the time <laughs> and just pop in and say hello, you know. And oftentimes I'm like, oh yeah, 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 again. But you know, in my own discussions with, with y'all, it's really important coming from this that I'm going to to take this into perspective and say, okay, I gotta calm down, you know, yeah. and, and also, you know, tell my own colleagues about this journey that you guys have allowed me to be on with you in terms of, you know, this is what they go through because no one knows, right? No one discusses what tele-ICU nurses go through mm-hmm. at the bedside with, with people like me who take care of patients. And that's a really important missing factor. And if I gave you all another presentation to do it, do it. <laughs> because I think that it's really important that, you know, that discussion is had. And, you know, if you can see your own faults or your own missteps and things like that it's going to make you a better nurse so anyway you've given me another thought of going back to the bedside and telling my coworkers about this good good yay and we could yeah. totally do like a whole role play yeah oh that'd be great <laughs> quite honestly right like i yeah. mean this alone is like a tele icu environment if, if if you will but it's way different in a clinical environment too you know yeah yeah. Yeah. Just think of it as we're there to help take the burden a little bit off the bedside. You yeah. know, that's what we really are. I, you know, second layer protection. Yeah. And I think that like a lot of organizations don't necessarily utilize tele ICU in the way that it could. Mm-hmm. You know, or at, at least some 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 may be a little bit behind the eight ball on it, mm-hmm. as you will. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, the one the one good thing that's come out of COVID is um, I think it's really brought to the forefront front how important telemedicine is. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, and kind of you know our place now has been you know validated in healthcare world. I think it's really odd to me that a technology a te- technological excuse me advancement such as telehealth took so long to get to the forefront of importance. It took a pandemic to get tele-ICU to the forefront of importance when we FaceTime, we Google Duo, you know, we have other ways of Zoom right now, we have other ways of communicating with each other. And it's kind of like, well, let's wait a little bit and see, you know, about what, what we're gonna do with this when it should have just been pushed out to the forefront. And I think a large part of the delay was because CMS wouldn't pay for it. Right. Convincing those those lovely people that if this is yeah. worth it, right? Well, how are we going to pay the physicians? That's the biggest, that's the biggest thing that drives me insane. Because I think a lot of physicians, I mean, a lot of physicians were on board, you know, long time ago, but, you know, you can only do, do telemedicine for certain types of visits and people in certain types of places and things like that, because it, you know, if they didn't meet certain criteria, then CMS wouldn't pay. Yeah. You know, so, and what provider is going to do work for free yep for sure (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i'm not you know there's no blame in in anything because it's it's all here you know um hindsight right now but cms finally you know and i think i took a deep breath of relief because now you know our telling i see you i feel like it's 1997 again and i'm in dial-up internet and (laughs) it's also 2020 right and all and this was really brought to my attention around March or April when we can only have, we have a 32 bed unit. We can only have one patient on tele-ICU talk with their family at one time. And I was just like, really? <laughs> like, this is where we're at in 2020. We can only have one person on dial up. Okay. Thanks. Thanks technology. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure if, if it's the same where you guys are at. But that alone just kind of said to me, man, we have ways to go with some of these advancements in telling ICU health. And, you know, it should have been advanced for so long because we've had it for so long. I think like greater than 20 years, right? This has been around. Yeah, yeah, from like telestroke and stuff was early 2000s, I'd say. Yeah, and I think, yeah, and I forget, there's an organization in Virginia that has had it for a while too. And they've expanded. I think they were like, 2001 or something like that yeah and it's just and they're worldwide i think too which is crazy do you think that the future of telehealth is going to be like an iphone in terms of just flipping on facetime and kind of you know seeing things and all that crazy stuff or do you think it's gonna take its time or where do you see that no i think we're already there because i mean i just had a telemedicine visit with my provider last week and used my iphone oh awesome so. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely there. Um, you know, the the platforms are there to utilize. You know, mobile mobile mm-hmm. devices. So I definitely think that's where it's going. Do you see any issues? So I, I actually had a provider um, who does neuro- neurology have a comment about tele ICU, and she was mentioning that it's really it's really hard to get a really good neuro assessment via tele-ICU provider. And I'm wondering your take on that. Have you seen issues with doing a, a full assessment? Have you have, have any kind of like 
best tips or, or tricks to that? Um, honestly, I, I haven't really had experience with doing like a full neuroassessment. Yeah. Um, I, so that's really more on like kind of uh, the other um, end of the spectrum mm -hmm. for our telemedicine. Um, so, so I can't really speak to that. Um, but I do know that the, the equipment is, you know, to the point where you could zoom in and see pupil dilation. I mean, it's very advanced equipment, high definition equipment. Um, and I think if you have a properly trained bedside provider, like our yeah. nurse to, to go walk through that assessment on an NIH, I, I don't see why that it, it wouldn't be able to be, a, a, you know, a fruitful experience. Yeah, or, or even a trained, um, oh, what is that caregiver term now that we're that we're using? Telepresenter. Telepresenter, but there's also for for the for like an inpatient, there's some legal term now that we have for a caregiver. And I forget what it is off the top of my head. And I'm gonna, it's gonna bother me. But I'll include it in, in the notes, obviously, after this episode. But it's a it's a term that describes the person that's going to be responsible for the patient's care once they leave. And it's not like a POA, it's not like any of that. It's just something that we identify you in the inpatient setting and begin teaching you these things. And, and once you get home, you're the one responsible for this care. Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, just like you're saying, telepresenter, if that would lend itself to the same term that I'm trying to think of, that's on the top of my head. Oh, I see. Um, but yeah, that sounds great. What else about tele-ICU before we, before we wrap up? I don't think I have anything. Yeah, I don't think I, I think we covered a lot of bases. <laughs> I mean, I think we did too. And it's, yeah. yeah, sometimes, sometimes I'll have conversations and, and they'll, you know, they will cover so many things in such a short amount of time. And other times, you know, it's just kind of like, we just keep talking about things. So anything you guys want to share is perfectly fine with me. No, I think um, just to get it out there that, you know, um, we're not big brother and, you know, we're just there, we're just there to help. Um, and like you said, be nicer to us. Yeah, I mean, for our staff, you know, the number one thing that, that we say, you know, is, you know, we're here to help. So let us help. And, you know, for, you know, what we tell our staff is if somebody calls and asks for help, obviously like you know they need help or they wouldn't be calling so let's figure out a way to to help them even if we don't really have a workflow or protocol for that there's almost always something that we can do to to, to lend a hand so um you know and then we'll figure out a workflow or protocol later so that's that's kind of the, the mission that that we have is that you know we're just here to help and whatever we can do to to, to make that mission happen you know um we're willing to do that's awesome well, Tracy and Candace, thank you so much for being a part of this episode. I look forward to putting this one out. It's going to be really exciting, I think, yeah. for people that have no clue, A, what telehealth is, or mm -hmm. if they do know what it is, a really good in-depth discussion of really different, you know, discussion topics that we've covered today that I think will be really fruitful for them. Right. Yes, thank you for thank having, you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.